episode of The Muppet Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm David. Here today are... Adam Grossworth. Christy Bauer. And Michal Richardson. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. I have two I have two updates, not actually corrections. Um, as promised, follow-ups from last week. I watched the night they took Miss Beautiful, the television movie from 1978. Do, do not do what I did. <laughs> Don't watch it. <laughs> it's very bad and not in a fun way. Thank you for your sacrifice. It's mostly just boring, but like, like at one one of the the pageant contestants' mothers is on the plane, and she pimps out her daughter to one of the hijackers. Oh. So like, there's there's. Definitely a rape in this TV movie from yikes. the 70s. Yeah, yikes. And actually, they, they handle it, like, they handled, like, the aftermath of it fairly sensitively. But uh, even so, it was not the fun, campy romp that I was looking for, nor is it good. So it's not, like, I'm, you know, I'm fine with the drama, but, like, it, it was, no, don't watch it. It's bad. It's just very boring. And I also uh, watched It's Your First Kiss, Charlie Brown. Don't watch that either. It's maybe worse. <laughs> And more upsetting than the night they took Miss Beautiful. There's a lot of football in the movie, ostensibly about Charlie Brown's first kiss. I did remember it. Like once I started watching it, it it came back to me. It's just it's just bad. The soundtrack is kind of amazing. Like just like the the background music is very very 1977 78. But yeah, it's bad and dull. And like Charlie Brown's relationship to the little redheaded girl has always been problematic and remains extremely so i have a correction this week too and this will give you a sense of the distance between what we're editing and what we're recording on the same day so in the milton burl episode i mentioned that he got his start in the silent film the perils of pauline which is something that he would say about himself all the time however Wikipedia notes that this has never been independently verified and is unlikely as no child characters appear in the serial. So I apologize for spreading that legend, which is likely untrue. This week, we are talking about season two, episode seven. Uh, This was produced the week of July 12th, 1977, and it aired in New York on October 10th, 1977. Hey, we're recording this on October 9th, 2021. So happy anniversary. Edgar Bergen episode of The Muppet Show. This was the fourth episode to air in New York, so we are, we are early in the season in, uh, in airing time. On television tonight, it's not a holiday week at all, so we are back to our regular lineup. B. Arthur is a guest on Laugh-In, and the NBC movie opposite football is Killer on Board, a deadly virus on a cruise ship. Nope. Nope. No, thank you. Nope. Nope. Not. Learned my lesson last week, and even if I hadn't, nope. But let's pour one out for TV movies like every week. Every week NBC made one of these. That's crazy. I happened to skim a couple pages past the TV section in the Times this week and saw the headline, Slide Rule Going the Way of Abacus as Pocket Calculator Moves In. Wow. It's these days. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. It may be a little hard for us in 2021 to imagine a famous ventriloquist, never mind the most famous ventriloquist, but that is indeed what Edgar Bergen was. He took his act with the dummies Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer Snurd, and others from vaudeville to motion pictures to TV and even radio. Now, if you're saying, what about Jeff Dunham? We will not speak of Jeff Dunham now or ever. 
Born in 1903 in Chicago, Edgar Bergen mostly grew up in Michigan, where he taught himself the art of ventriloquism. At age 19, he bought the head of a dummy from a local woodworking shop, which he affixed to a body that he made himself, and a magical partnership was born. In the early 20s, Bergen and his dummy Charlie McCarthy honed their act on the Chattaqua vaudeville circuit, eventually playing Chicago and then New York. Originally conceived of as a newsboy, Charlie McCarthy first donned his monocle hat and tails when Bergen was invited to perform at a party in honor of Noel Coward at the Rainbow Room in New York in 1936. The act was a hit, and they were seen by some important radio executives. After an initial tryout performance on Rudy Valley's show in December 1936, they joined the Chase and Sanborn Hour the following May, which became known as the Charlie McCarthy Show. It was an immediate success, and they remained on the radio in one form or another until 1956. It's less impressive to be a ventriloquist on the radio, I'm just going to say. <laughs> I have well, questions about all of this that I'm saving for later. <laughs> In some ways, it's less impressive, and in some ways, it's more impressive because he was doing ventriloquism without his main tool, which is the dummy. You know, he had to do it all just by changing his voice and still make it a compelling act, even without the like trick of it. So there's something to that. Did they record sure. in mono? Like, was he still throwing his voice so that oh, yeah, it was his voice would come out of different speakers? No, no, no. It was a mono. This was just. Him, you know, in, in many ways, it's sort of like what Mo Blank did with Looney Tunes, right? It was just one person doing lots of different voices. Yeah. One story I want to read just directly from Wikipedia. Bergen and McCarthy are sometimes credited with saving the world because on the night of October 30th, 1938, when Orson Welles performed his War of the Worlds radio play that panicked many listeners, most of the American public had instead tuned to Bergen and McCarthy on another station and never heard Welles's play. Conversely, it has also been theorized that Bergen inadvertently contributed to the hysteria. When the musical portion of Bergen's show, The Chase and Sanborn Hour, aired approximately 12 minutes into the show, many listeners adjusted their dial and found the War of the Worlds presentation already underway, with realistic-sounding reporter detailing terrible events. So, either way, they either prevented it from being worse or caused it. Who's to say? (laughs) According to the World Encyclopedia of Puppetry Arts, As a performer accustomed to working in a radio studio, Bergen got into the habit of compromising his once flawless lip control for the sake of good broadcast diction, which I think if you're watching this Muppet Show episode and thinking, what kind of ventriloquist is this? His mouth is moving very visibly. That's the answer. Although I also think that watching the Muppet Show, you're trained to look at the puppets and not necessarily at the man holding the puppets. So Mm. uh, it may or may not bother you. It didn't bother me. In 1938, Bergen published the book How to Become a Ventriloquist. That same year, he was awarded a special Oscar, which was presented in the form of a wooden statuette with a moving mouth. It is now part of the collection of the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, which also houses one of three Charlie McCarthy dummies. Another is part of the collection of the Smithsonian Institute's Museum of American History, and the third is owned by magician David Copperfield. Jim Henson considered Bergen a major inspiration, So getting him for The Muppet Show was a very big deal to Jim. He also invited Bergen and McCarthy to appear in The Muppet Movie, which turned out to be their final appearance. Edgar died shortly after completing work on the film, which is dedicated to his memory. As we mentioned last season when we discussed the episode featuring his daughter Candace Bergen, Edgar and Candace are the only parent and child to each guest star on The Muppet Show. And Edgar's wife, Candace's mother, Frances Bergen, has a memorable cameo in The Muppets Take Manhattan as well. Michal, I know you found some stuff that Edgar had said about Jim and Jim had said about Edgar. Do you want to share that? Yeah, I was. I mean, it's 
just from the Edgar Bergen's Muppet Wiki page. I didn't do any serious digging, but I was very charmed by these two quotes from, you know, different interviews. They weren't talking to each other, but Jim Henson and Edgar Bergen each said these complimentary compliments about each other, which was very sweet. Jim said about Edgar Bergen, Edgar Bergen's work with Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snood was magic, magic in the real sense. Something happened when Edgar spoke through Charlie. Things were said that couldn't be said by ordinary people. It's a way of looking at ourselves and our world in a fresh perspective. That's what theater does and what humor does and what Edgar Bergen did. He left this world a happier place because he was here. And I think that's about the finest thing a person can do with his life. So that's lovely. And Edgar Bergen said about Jim Henson, audiences of all ages believe in both Charlie and Kermit. My act and the Muppets are both sophisticated and adult, but children love them too because we give children a chance to use their imaginations. They complete the illusions that our characters start. So they each had a sense about the other, about this uh, sense of theater and magic, which I, I appreciate. That's nice. You know, I was aware of them as sort of pop culture figures, but I I think the only performances of theirs that I've seen are primarily the Muppet movie and then also this episode of The Muppet Show. Although Edgar Bergen also had a bit of an acting career separate from his ventriloquism, including some big movies, but I don't think I had seen any of them. Or if I have, I don't remember them. Do any of you have particular memories of them? Not outside of Muppet stuff. Yeah, same, but like it they were present enough to be a cultural reference that I understood and still understand, but I don't know why, you know, (laughs) like, like I was young enough as, as I think they were fading to have just absorbed them as a thing, you know? Yeah. I, you sort of answered this. Like I was, I was thinking I was, this is, this is going to sound rude to Edgar Bergen. I don't mean it to, but like, I was thinking about it in terms of rich little, the difference being that Edgar Bergen is very entertaining. But like I was wondering, like, is he any is he a good ventriloquist? He's an entertaining performer. Right. I think he's a good comedian. Right. And I think before he was on the radio, I think he was a very skilled ventriloquist. And then he got famous enough that it didn't matter that that he got I don't know if lazy is the right word, but that he got sloppy with his lip movement because at that point People were really coming for the interplay of these characters and not for the, ooh, wow, you can't see his lips move. Right. Why don't you get me Christy, what'd you think of this episode? Is it a pun to call this episode solid? <laughs> <laughs> Better than wooden. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it, it's decent. It has some really great laughs in it. I, th- I think it's paced really well. It's got a, an interesting mix of sketches and songs. A really unusual mix of musical numbers this week. And yeah, I... I did find myself wondering if having lived during a time when Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy had a much bigger cultural footprint, if it would play differently, but even without any cultural attachment to them, I, I did find them very charming and yeah. And the, the Muppet business this week in particular is a okay by me. Nicole. Yeah. I mean, this episode is, lovely and wonderful in so many ways. It contains several of my favorite Muppet things. I would I don't mind that there are two Muppet Chicken acts. I would watch Muppet Chickens cluck through the entire American songbook. That would be fine. So there's lots that I loved. And then also ventriloquism is a very unnerving art. And I don't quite understand. I mean, I read a little bit about why it exists, but it still didn't quite make sense to me. And even just contemplating the idea of the way that Edgar Bergen must have to manipulate his voice and have to manipulate 
his face to make Charlie articulate the way that he does, it made my my entire larynx just tighten up and shrivel in fear. <laughs> I, I don't like thinking about what he must have to do to his voice. That said, he's very good at it. And I can see the way that uh, Charlie McCarthy moves and like he shifts his posture when he addresses Kermit or the way, even though he doesn't have all that much mobility, um, there's a lot that can be done to make this definitely wooden puppet as expressive as he can possibly be. So it was interesting just to observe as an art form, even if I'll be happy to not have to look at any more wooden dummies for a while. David? Yeah, solid B episode. No real complaints about it. Other than Fozzie's comedy act, I don't know that there's anything that I'd put in a greatest hits compilation. So, uh, you know, glad we watched it. Not necessarily one that I'm going to rush to revisit. Huh, it's so rare that I like things better than you guys. <laughs> I feel like <clears throat> I really love this episode. And I, it, fr- from my memory of when these DVDs came out, which was the last time I watched everything straight through like this, I feel like we're a long way off from not a long way off, but a few weeks off from the Muppet show, like becoming the Muppet show fully. But this was, this is feeling that way to me. Um, and I'll get into why a little bit later, but, but yeah, I don't know. I was very charmed by this episode, which surprised me because I wasn't excited to watch it before I did. Edgar Bergen, 25 seconds to curtain, Mr. Bergen. So in our cold open right off the bat, we've got a uh, Edgar Bergen in the dressing room with Charlie McCarthy, who, can't believe his eyes when he sees Blue Frackle, and Blue Frackle can't believe it either. I just can't believe my eyes. A stick of wood that talks. Sure, okay. I noticed this time a, a Wayne and Wanda uh, headshot among the photos on the wall. Maybe. Yeah, they're looking very dapper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nothing to report from our yay evolution. We're, uh, we've plateaued at Kermit doing the open mouth nodding thing. And we've got a, a Settler Mulder clip from the opening. Maybe this week they'll be funny. Wanna bet? Mm, us too. <laughs> Here's what I noticed about this one is that that's a joke that I actually think deserved a laugh moment, but because of the way it's fit into the rhythm of the song, like they barely even get a punchline and definitely don't have time for laugh track. And it's too bad. The joke deserves more. Yeah. Agreed. As with last week, Gonzo's trumpet fires a gunshot, except it's not it's not the same clip. Gonzo ducks behind the O this time. Like he like the the recoil gets him. Like he's blown oh, backwards. It, to me it looked like he was afraid of I don't know, whatever might like might be firing back at him. Instead of him. Yeah. Oh, I thought it looked to me like he was he was blown back by the Oh, I thought he was worried about retaliation. Eh, either way. But Yeah. Yeah. Explosions. Funny. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. If this week's backstage bits really add up to anything, there's not much story there. But if they add up to anything, it's a statement about how thrilled the Muppets are to have Edgar Bergen and his act. And mostly, it's a bunch of cute gags. Like with chickens. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, well, I, I see what you mean about the dressing room. Yeah, I'll see what I can do about having a coop built for you out back, okay? Okay, okay, sure, right. You have to treat the chickens pretty well because they got a very tough union. Just a really strong, like, recurring theme emerging about <laughs> working conditions at the Bumpa Show <laughs> and labor organizing, and I'm here for it. And I'm also very intrigued by the fact that the chickens have their own union, that they're not 
like in with the other performers somehow? Well, you know, back in the day on Broadway, the principal actors and the chorus used to have separate unions. Right. So I imagine it's sort of like that. Right. That makes sense. And we've also got a Kermit engaging Charlie in some friendly banter. Don't you know the difference between a frog and a toad? I guess not, no. <laughs> well, you see, frogs are handsome, debonair, and charming, while toads are ugly and give you warts. I see. Uh, I guess that means the toad is supposed to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kermit, I, I do forgive Charlie. I know that he can be difficult and trying. Yeah, I can be difficult without trying. Yeah, I know you can. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed that line. Meanwhile, Fozzie is planning a ventriloquist act all of his own. Pigs in space out on stage, please. Kermit, you promised me a welterweight brick. <laughs> Scooter, would you find Captain Hogthrob and tell him to stand by, please? Check. Uh, Kermit, where's the glue? Uh, well, it's in the office. Where's oh. Piggy? Oh, also, I need some string and some paint. And do you have any black cloth? Uh, Fozzie, I'm trying to run a show around here. Oh, I know, Kermit. But you see, I'm on in a few minutes, and uh, my act's not ready. Uh, well, what act is that, Fozzie? <laughs> oh, well, you know uh, how Edgar Bergen gets screams of laughter just by talking with Charlie McCarthy? Uh, yeah, so? Me and Chucky will knock him dead tonight. <laughs> here he goes, the dummy and his dummy. It's really very impressive. He's built a whole mouth mechanism for this puppet. Fozzie's doing a lot of work this episode. And yet Kermit calls him dumb. It's so mean. It's so mean. We'll talk about it more when we get to it. This whole storyline made me so sad (laughs) for Fozzie. And the reveal of Chucky is deeply disturbing to me. (laughs) The stereotype of like, you know, controlling stomachs being creepy, like fine, whatever. Chucky is creepy. Chucky is unnerving. But what I really want to talk about here is actually the bit before Fozzie enters, like the backstage chaos and the way Kermit is just like moving through it all and handling it. Like this is the Kermit that I want and the Kermit that I love. And, and the way I feel like, like the show is becoming the show that I'm used to. I just really like this sort of glimpse of the backstage and of, of Kermit actually being good at this. Um, And the way he handles Fozzie and, you know, just like, Oh yeah, I know where the glue is. I know, like I know how to, how to get you what you need. I, I really love that part. So uh, moving right along through the backstage business, uh, Fozzie is asking Edgar Bergen for advice, and he ends up with a bit of an earful from Mortimer Snurd. I didn't even know you were here. Well, well say, maybe I'm not here. <laughs> what? Well, was I here yesterday? Uh, no. Well, then probably I'm not here today. I don't <laughs> travel too much. Uh, You'll have to excuse Mortimer. He's a little bit slow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's probably why I'm not here. Yeah. Wait, wait. What do you mean, Mortimer? Well, if I were faster, I'd be here by now. Oh. Are you through? No, I'm here. Yeah, all right. So we'll get to Fozzie's actual act and uh, Edgar Bergen's act as well in a little bit, but mostly the Muppets are Edgar Bergen super fans. It's cute. It's very cute. It's interesting to see how they handle a guest star who basically can't move. Not that he physically couldn't move, but because the, the nature of his act is such that he can't go anywhere. Which is not so different from how they handled Ethel Merman last season. Speaking of chickens, we got quite a bit of a chicken business in Musicland this week. Yeah, 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 yeah,
I just want to say that Adam asked us which part of this number he should clip. And I said, obviously, when the beat drops. (laughs) (laughs) We're right. Yep. Good call. Uh, so if, if you don't recognize the song, um, and wh- why why would you in that form? It, it, it's actually a, a pretty old song. It's a song called Babyface. It's a Tin Pan Alley song from 1926. It was written by Harry Axt and Benny Davis. Harry Axt wrote the music. He was mostly known as an accompanist for uh, performers in that era, including Al Jolson. He was a good friend of Irving Berlin's. And he wrote several popular songs at the time, including Dinah and Am I Blue? And funnily enough, even though he was known as a songwriter by that point, he played the accompanist character in the movie 42nd Street from the 30s. And uh, Benny Davis, who wrote the lyrics, was a vaudeville performer and songwriter. And he was apparently a big user of false rhymes in his lyrics. And uh, his fellow lyricist, Howard Dietz, once joked, heaven save us from Benny Davis. I was like, ooh, that's a burn. But, you know, jokes on Howard Dietz because they did induct Benny Davis to the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1975. And I suspect that this was inspired not by just the song being in the popular consciousness. I mean, it was a hit a couple of times in the twenties and the original version was actually mostly instrumental. It was performed by Jan Garber and his orchestra uh, and lyricist Benny Davis just sang the chorus. But funnily enough, there was a disco version that hit number two on the disco charts in 1976. And I suspect that that's why this appears here in this form. We actually have a clip. You got the cutest little baby face. 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 That's not another one to take I also oh, couldn't decide wow. which part of that to clip because I love all of it. <laughs> I'm sure I wasn't the only one of us who was chair dancing while that was. Playing. Oh, no, you were not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's also worth mentioning that the, the band that uh, did Disco Babyface was called the Wing and a Prayer Fife and Drum Corps. <laughs> love it. Just a great name for a, a band. You know, I keep meaning to do this and I just decided to do it because 1926, you know, was a very long time ago, al- almost 100 years. It was 51 years before this episode of the Muppet Show was made. 51 years before now was 1970. And among the hit songs of 1970 were Close to You by the Carpenters and I'll Be There by the Jackson 5. Just for for context. That's rude. I know. Sorry. (laughs) Iron Rain by James Taylor. I mean. Well, but I think it actually makes a good point, which are these are all songs we know because they've stuck around because 50 years is not. So long in pop culture, at least in the era of recording. Right. And a bunch I've never heard of. And actually, a bunch more I have, I'll stop. But, you know, you can Google it <laughs> if you want to. But, like, yeah, just interesting. Time and a bottle. We'll get there. What's also interesting is that we're not quite 50 years from The Muppet Show, but we're, like, 45 years. So, yeah. uh, you know, the show that we are discussing right now is more or less as far away from us as this song was from the audience of that show. Anyway, when Kermit entered this as a 
country number. I was watching this episode with my partner and he said, oh no, a jug band. We've trained him well. <laughs> but I was so delighted that it was chickens. Something I noticed that I don't think I had really had the opportunity to notice before is that I tend to think of these chickens as clones of one another. But if you look at oh, them, no. each one has you know something distinctive about their face, their eyes, their personality. Uh, so there was you know, one. There's one stage right who is either very sleepy or very stoned <laughs> that kept drying my eye. But it's also weird that none of the chickens who are not Camilla ever get names, as far as I know. Michal, correct me if I'm wrong here. Not that I know of. Right? Like, the rats, there are names that come and go. The pigs have names. The penguins do not have names. But, uh, you know, the penguins are also... It's bird prejudice. Oh, maybe that's it. The one, I guess it's a chicken. The rooster has a name. This is conducted by T.R., who uh, we've seen on the Muppet Show before, but you know, is most memorable from his appearance in Muppets Musician of Bremen. And it's funny because after this song, they do an audience shot, and it's a chicken audience shot, but it's a reused shot from uh, the Rich Little episode. And so TR and the chickens are all sitting in the audience applauding the number that they just performed. It's a little bit of that Too Many Floyds issue again. Yeah, I'm glad that bothered somebody else and not just me. <laughs> I decided not to mention it, but I'm glad someone else did. It's also worth mentioning that the, the Muppets have performed Babyface numerous times, including a Jim Henson's memorial and a TV special from 1979 called The Muppets Go Hollywood. And on Muppet Babies Live? I've never heard of this. It's like Sesame Street Live, but with yeah, Muppet it's a, Babies. It's a big head stage show. Oh, okay. This has been stuck in my head all day and it keeps turning into other songs. I had this problem. So I, with some regularity, I will walk around the apartment clocking Muppet Chicken baby face, like even before I had watched this episode many times this week. But it happened the other day that I was walking around clocking Muppet Chicken baby face, which turned into, I'm sorry, everyone, Muppet Chicken the Entertainer. Oh, no. I freaked out. I was like, no, no, we need to sing something else. And my spouse kindly started Muppet Chicken clucking Little Spanish Flea. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, am I helping? I was like, yes, actually. (laughs) For me, it's it's either been um, Mammy, which makes sense now that I know that there's an Al Jolson connection, or the Animaniacs theme. I would just like to propose Muppet Chicken Babyface as a new expletive. (laughs) 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 Muppet Chicken Babyface. Absolutely. Anytime you stub your toe. <laughs> Why would they have a bunch of chickens sing baby face? Because the alligators were sick. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so as part of uh, the backstage business with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, we have a musical welcome committee moment. If you're going to do jokes like that, Bergen and I will see you right at home. Yes, we will. Well, that, that's yeah. what we want. Yeah, Relax, yes. Uh, no, song cues. Consider yourself at home. Consider yourself one of the family. No, thank you. We've taken to you so strong. It's clear we're going to get along. It's it's a pretty shameless music cue. Uh, it's not quite as shameless as. What What about about the the places? places? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Which is going to be pretty hard to dethrone. Mm -hmm. But um, but this 
this takes a little bit of getting to to uh, <laughs> make it happen, but I'm I'm delighted that they get there. So uh, this is Consider Yourself from the musical Oliver from 1960. It was written by Lionel Bart. It's funny. Wikipedia refers to Oliver as a British coming of age stage musical, which sure. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what it's about. Um, it's a, it's a, a musical version of Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. It's, it's very British. It's very Cockney. So it's always funny to me to hear uh, <laughs> it performed not by a, a bunch of Dickensian street urchins. And uh, yeah, Lionel Bart wrote plenty of other things, but Oliver was his one big enduring success. Interestingly, he couldn't read or write music. He hummed it to an assistant who transcribed everything. You should have tried clucking it. This was not a best song winner because it wasn't eligible because it already existed for the stage show. But Oliver did win Best Picture at the Oscars in 1968. That movie, uh, I, I mentioned when we talked on the Cindy Duncan episode how I was like not I was not a musical theater child. I came to it a little bit later, but the the movie of Oliver was on TV. I want to say every weekend. I'm, I know that's not true, but like <laughs> either like channel five, 11 or nine, like one of the, one of the non-network channels aired it all the time for some reason. And so I watched it all the time because as we've, as we've discussed, that's what we did. <laughs> and I was really into it and I loved it. And I had the, I had the record, I had the movie soundtrack. And so it was like that and Peter Pan and like really rosy were like the three musicals that I was into as a child. One of these things, Oliver, it's not like the others. <laughs> <laughs> and then my elementary school every year does a fourth grade play. The fourth grade, the entire fourth grade is required <laughs> to be in this play. <laughs> and I feel like now they must do like proper licensed TYA something because lots of those exist. But at the no, time, no one who's listening knows what TYA is. Adam. Theater for young audiences. Sorry, <laughs> or the the junior edition right. things from MTI. Right, there's like yeah. lots of stuff. At the time, we no did... one who's listening knows what MTI is. <laughs> <laughs> Contact Music Theater International. Contact they clues. Like, they they license shows yes. for uh, performance. And there's like lots Not of things written for children now and whatever. <laughs> but at the time, we did these like bastardized versions of things like Peter Pan and. Oliver <laughs> cut down to like an hour with only four songs in it, which everyone sang regardless of who was on stage. For and children's version of Oliver, what happens to Nancy? She definitely got killed on stage by, by Bill Sykes. Okay. Not raped, but <laughs> wow. for sure stabbed like behind a thing, like behind a cardboard. <laughs> it's very, it, if like, if somebody made a movie and this was like a, a, a comedy scene, you would not believe it. It was true, but it was true. <laughs> oh, no. I, I have it on video. I mean, I'll, we're not putting it in the show notes, but you all can watch it. I played Fagin number two. Um, <laughs> I did not have any songs. Pick a pocket was not in the show, but consider yourself was. And so like, I definitely like know every word of the song to this day, because even if you weren't in the scene, you were still singing the song from offstage. How many Fagans were there? Uh, two, only two. There were three Olivers, two Fagans. Um, and a partridge. <laughs> yeah, I think three Dodgers. <laughs> so I did the second half of the show. So I got to get arrested at the end. Sweet. Yeah, it's very weird. It's very weird. But, you know, children, whatever. It's fine. We had a good time. And I was excited it, because I knew the movie. Like, I knew, like, that was, I, yeah. You know, it's funny. Oliver is one of these shows. They revive it in London, like, every 20 minutes. And it's a huge hit. And... The last time it came to Broadway, I think, was like 1980, and it ran for a week. Yeah, I've still never seen it on stage. 
Yeah, I don't know why, like, what the discrepancy is there. It was. I think the Jonathan Price one was supposed to come in, and then it didn't. Yeah, that's already like three revivals ago in Britain. It's very British, and it's very dark. It would be my prognostication there. But if if this is at all in your wheelhouse, there are two very different things that I would suggest that you seek out, and we can put them in the show notes. One is, so the show was on Broadway originally in 1963, and the Artful Dodger was played by uh, Davy Jones, later of the Monkees. And if you're uh, (laughs) interested in the mid-century monoculture in the way that we are, it's worth looking up uh, the appearance of Oliver on The Ed Sullivan Show, because their performance was on the same episode as The Beatles, Oh my goodness. Huh. Yeah. Uh, the, the entire episode is a delight. Also British uh, comedian Tessie O'Shea appears and she's like body and hilarious. Was it, was it a themed episode that they were all British or is that just coincidence? It just happened. Yeah. It's very strange. I, I saw it. So the f- 50th anniversary of, of the episode airing the Paley center had it on their big screen. And I saw it, it was just like, this is a great artifact. And I think the entire thing, at least in clips, is on YouTube. Completely unrelated to that, there's a, a really doofy Conan O'Brien bit in which uh, <laughs> they take a clip from the Jerry Lewis telethon of him talking about I- introducing this like great singer who is beloved by you know different generations. And then they cut to conan o'brien singing this with a really exaggerated cockney accent and it makes me laugh every time it's goofy by the way if you're listening and thinking that davy jones thing doesn't match up with my memory that's because the cast album was recorded in los angeles during the show's pre-broadway run with a child playing that role who got fired before broadway and replaced by davy jones and that's why uh a lot of people don't know that he's associated with this because he didn't get to do the album Yep, but he got to do Ed Sullivan on the same night that the Beatles appeared. That's amazing. So, yeah. Our UK spot this week is a, a Ralph spot, but before we play the clip, uh, my own mother requested that we explain what the UK spot is. It's been a it's while. It's been a minute. Yeah, so the, the show was longer when it aired in the UK because of a lack of commercials. So they had more time to fill. So there was always an extra segment for British audiences. So that's what the UK spot was. And here it is. Show me a rose and I'll show you a stag at bay. Show me a rose. Leave me alone. One night in Bixby, Mississippi, we watched the clouds roll by. I said, my dear, how are you? And she whispered, so am I. <laughs> show me a rose and I'll show you a girl named Sam. Show me a rose or leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, Show Me a Rose, she probably could have guessed, uh, which is a song writ- written for Groucho Marx who performed it often, written for him by uh, Harry Ruby, who wrote the music, and Burt Kalmar, who wrote the lyrics. And uh, Kalmar and Ruby were a team that wrote together for decades. And there's actually a movie about them, the 1950 movie, Three Little Words. It's not a bad movie as far as uh, 
MGM musical songwriter biopics go, it's one of the better ones. Fred Astaire played Kalmar and Red Skelton played Ruby. And Fred Astaire won the first ever Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy. Well, good for him. Yeah. yeah. And Kalmar and Ruby wrote uh, for the Marx Brothers a number of times. Like I just last weekend happened to be watching Horse Feathers and they wrote the score for that. That's where the song Everyone Says I Love You comes from. Huh. Which I did not know was a Marx Brothers song having primarily associated it with Woody Allen, even though I know it wasn't obviously written for the Woody Allen movie. I love this sketch. I I would watch Muppet Chickens cluck through the American Songbook. I would watch Rolf play through every signature Groucho Marx song. I mean, beyond this and Lydia, I don't know how much there is to explore, but I want more of it. Yeah, it seems like there should be more Muppet Marx Brothers overlap somehow. Like, they, they seem like... Like there seems to be a spiritual kinship there. Well, Groucho did do the Mikado, so Titwillow kind of counts. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it on that playlist. So I don't know if it's that the camera moves around more or just that the piano's top is open in this one, but I found Rolf's piano to be more convincing as a real piano in this segment, even though it's definitely the same piano that we've seen before, like in the Judy Collins episode. It did look bigger. I agree with that. Grab your tissues, everybody. Meh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Grab your tissues, me. Grab your tissues, everybody who has a heart. There you go. (laughs) If I could make days last forever. If words could make wishes come true. I'd save every day like a treasure and then again. I would spend them with you. But there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. I've looked around enough to know you're the one I want to go through time with. I find this really moving and even though there it has some story issues i have yeah, some questions about it there's a an, an elderly muppet scientist who is creating some kind of elixir of youth potion he starts out elderly and bearded and then like over time gets younger but the last time he takes it it backfires and he's his old self again there's no joke to it. It's not done in any sort of jokey way. It's just sort of contemplative in an unusual way for this show, I think. Not that there aren't, you know, lovely moments. I think of like, you know, Sandy Duncan singing Try to Remember. But like it, the- it's weird to do this as a Muppets only number. And not it's not that yeah. it's weird to do that kind of a song for a Muppets only number. Yeah, and and a, a Muppet that we never, that we don't know, that we, we don't see again. You know, I'm always here for an overly literal take on the lyrics, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm here for this. My problem with it is that, right, this is a very sweet love song sung, you know, to someone else. And the scientist is singing it to himself? I took it as though he was saying that he wanted to figure out a way to extend time. So he's experimenting. Not that, not that it meant like he wants 
only himself to live forever, but like if he can make this work, then he and the person he's thinking about can be young forever together. Okay, that's a that's a more generous reading. Or he might be time traveling rather than growing younger. <laughs> right. Traveling back to be with somebody. But then it's meant to be very sad that he he fails at the end, but presumably if he's a good scientist, he's he's written down what he's done and he can just take all the potions again except for the last one and he's good to go. It's a lot of ifs. It creates uh more questions than it answers. Just saying, like it's it's meant to be very sad and 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 my partner are both like, well just just do it again and don't drink the last one. You're fine. <laughs> like it just I don't know. It just kind of it 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 undercut its own impact for me. But I did find it sweet until the end. Yeah, the the song itself has some sad baggage. So it's it's a Jim Croce song and it was a posthumous number one hit for him in December of 1973. He died of a plane crash in September of that year. And this is the second Jim Croce song that has appeared on The Muppet Show. The second posthumous Jim Croce song? Yeah, yeah. Right, because uh, the other one also was released after he died. Right. But he only had two number one hits, and the first one was not posthumous. There have only been seven posthumous number ones ever. And uh, the Notorious B.I.G. had two of them, so... Good for him? <laughs> Question mark? For this song to have come out after Jim Croce died, obviously, it gave it a, a bigger impact. As we are recording this, it's the weekend that Muppet Haunted Mansion just came out, and hopefully by now you've heard our mini-episode that we recorded about it, so this may be a repetition of something we said, but this had some unexpected resonance to watch this the same weekend as that, because there's a climactic scene in Muppet's Haunted Mansion I hope this is not a spoiler at this point where Gonzo has sort of a similar relationship to time and aging. And we see a horrifying aged Gonzo puppet. So I don't know. It was just, it was interesting to watch these two things back to back on a lighter note. The second scientist look is the most seventies thing that ever seventies. It's true. Stepped straight out of a Woody Allen movie. I think we need some more chickens. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So yes, our our last musical number brings the mood up significantly. This is a song called Down at Papa Joe's. I know that, you know, obviously it's a song that had to have a name that had to be written by a person. Like it didn't just like spontaneously occur, but I know this is a song. I thought the chickens were improvising. Yeah. (laughs) Took two people to write that song? Go figure. (laughs) Bless you. Uh, (laughs) I knew that would come in handy someday. This is a song uh, that also isn't ancient either. It's from the 60s. It was uh, written by a guy named Jerry Smith and was recorded by a girl group called the Dixie Bells during that weird moment in the mid-60s when Dixieland had a moment. And it was a number nine hit. As you'll hear, it's a very strange thing because it's, it's Dixieland, but it's also 60s girl group at the same time. Everybody there has a carnival time Down at Papa Joe's 
I know this as a like a kid's piano duet a la Heart and Soul, which is also a real song. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Are we sure? Yes, it has lyrics. It was a Frank Lesser number. I know, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I looked up the Dixie Bells because I was curious, and they were like a subgroup of the Anita Kerr singers, which is a group not entirely unlike the Mike Kerb congregation that, you know, would sometimes show up as like other people's backup singers. Or like if there was a variety show that needed a chorus, it might be the Anita Kerr singers. I don't know how how real the Dixie Bells were as a group. Meaning like, I don't know if they existed beyond like this particular recording i don't know terrible awful i hated it ah. uh, wonderful uh, spectacular <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. Loved it. so yeah the the same giant chicken that we saw on harvey corman makes another appearance and it just makes me wonder if this is like a venda face budget situation <laughs> Like somebody in production was like, okay, you can make the giant chicken, but you got to use the giant chicken. And so in season two, they're like, Ugh, we have to use the giant chicken like three more times to pay it off. Or they were looking around the room thinking about what they could write about and saw the giant chicken just hanging there. Said, what else can we do with the giant chicken? I can't decide if I love or don't love that this is such a chicken heavy episode and it is completely uncommented upon by everyone, including Gonzo. I mean, I guess Statler and Walter have commented on it, but like, it's not a theme episode. There's just a whole lot of chickens. Yeah. Nobody's turning into a chicken or getting abducted by chickens. Right, the chickens or... don't take over. It's not yeah. a special episode. Like Gonzo's not involved. It's just a, it's just a lot of chicken content. I'm not mad about well, it. I just, I think it's, it's that the chickens are starting to have a growing presence. You know, they, we had seen chickens here and there in the first season. But now they're starting to be like an ongoing concern. A lot of chicken going on. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. All right, let's take care of some show business. Uh, first, we've got a Muppet News Flash. Dateline The Muppet Show. An embarrassing situation developed today when the Muppet News reporter accidentally went on camera forgetting to put on his pants. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, good grief. <laughs> you only see his top half, but it's it's a good bit of show business. But why is it a problem then? What's embarrassing about that? Only in that he's reporting it. It's so silly. I mean, in this era of pantsless meetings, yes. And of like, you know, news anchors behind a desk all the time, I feel like. Yeah, this was 45 years ago. Things were different. Needed pants. I think first he needs legs. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Can't argue with that. So we're back in the wrestling arena for a moment. But what do you call a a wrestling ring? What's the square ring? Ring, Yeah, Yeah, it's a ring, but it's a square. Okay, great. Gonzo is in a wrestling square ring. He's attempting to wrestle a six pound red brick while blindfolded. He does eventually succeed in finding the brick and then it pins him. Alas. I know it's not fair to judge these things on our HG televisions, but that is a piece of styrofoam badly spray painted red, and it really bothered me. <laughs> I might not have noticed this had I not been having a conversation with someone on Twitter today about the evolution of Gonzo, but this feels like the first time where his act is strictly a daredevil act and not at all performance art. 
I mean, I I guess he's wrestling be, a brick. It, it's kind of performance art, yeah. I guess, but it feels it feels like the scale has tipped towards Daredevil and away from art. But maybe yeah. that's maybe that's because I'm not a big enough thinker. <laughs> if Flight of the Bumblebee were playing, would it be art? Perhaps. Oh, what do you know about great art? Six pound brick wrestling is not too far off from some of the, the hit classes I've taken. <laughs> 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 All right, let's talk about Pigs in Space, uh, in which, as they describe him, the indomitable Captain Link Hogthrob has a job for uh, what they call the flappable Miss Piggy to do. According to my records, the only person who's had the necessary training to save us is First Mate Piggy. <gasps> oh, I am ready to do whatever is necessary to save the swine trek and her crew. I am at the service of all Porkton. What is my assignment? Miss Piggy, mm. you and you alone can operate the independent heating slash unifying element across the horizontal equalizing plane and save the entire crew of the swine trek. Oh. Oh, I am ready, my captain. Excellent. Bring in the equipment for Miss Piggy. You want me to do the laundry? Well, of course. Nobody on the crew has had clean laundry for a week. Yeah, in between there, a couple of uh, crewmates brought out an ironing board and an iron. So considering that the last time we saw the Swine Trek crew, and we learned that Miss Piggy studied for 11 years to learn how to maneuver the ship, and all they can find for her to do is hand her an iron, I need to ask, is this irony? I feel like the show is getting better at feminism. Maybe. Slightly. Maybe slightly. Just yeah. like, you know, the idea that she is the only one with the proper training, right? She's the she's the only woman and she's the only one who knows how to iron is it's a it's a good piece of business. I also it feels very modern to me to say the slash out loud. <laughs> and I was surprised to hear it in nineteen seventy seven. Something I found interesting, and this is not strictly about this sketch, but it is about Pigs in Space in this episode, is that when we hear Kermit refer to them backstage, he refers to Captain Hogthrob as Captain Hogthrob, as though that is his name offstage as well. That was interesting to me. Yeah, that struck me as well. I guess they have some respect for military titles. When he was performing They Call the Wind Mariah, is that a space captain who also happens to enjoy musical theater. <laughs> Cause I had sort of assumed that Link Hogthrob was the actor. I think you're right. I mean, it's although not- it's well, except that like, if he was an actor, I guess he would probably have a different name than the character he played on pigs in space. And we never learned that name, oh, but, but that she's, also she's first mate Piggy. So that's true. It's not entirely uncommon to refer to, characters by their character name backstage yeah i could see that like you know uh you know oh shit it's about to be be our guest find me mrs potts exactly i think we've just put 10 times more thought into this than anybody did when they were making this episode but you know i could i could justify it that way yeah so Fozzie's on stage for his ventriloquist act um since we saw him backstage with his dummy he's uh, spruced up chucky a bit he managed to construct a tiny top hat. And you know what? That's not a rookie building move. I'm impressed. He has not, however, learned what ventriloquism is or how it works. Uh, Chucky, hey, 
Who was that lady I saw you with last night? This is funny. Uh, uh, Chucky, who was that lady I saw you with last night? Yeah, this goes on. Fozzie is just waiting for Chucky to say something, and it goes on long enough that Kermit has to come on stage and intervene. Fozzie does manage to finish the act, but the dummy gets the last laugh. He won't talk to me! Well, listen, there's something about ventriloquism that I think you should know. What? Well, you see, Fozzie, listen, Fozzie, Hmm? it's the ventriloquist who actually does the does it? Yes. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. No moving lips? No. Okay, okay, I got it now. Chucky, <laughs> who was that lady I saw you with last night? Actually, I spent the night alone. I found this truly upsetting. <laughs> upsetting for what reason? I, I love this. I think this is a, a top 10 all-time classic oh, Muppet sketch. No, I agree. Fozzie is so genuinely worried. <laughs> like, when Father Way Fozzie says he won't talk to me. Oh. Like, I, I, I've never felt more sad for Fozzie. I mean, he's bombed before and been heckled for it before. I know, and I've never felt more sad. Like this was different. Like he was—he seemed so upset, and it really upset me. But On the I other hand, agree, it's a great bit. When Kermit explains to him how it works, and he has that moment of realization. Like, I mean, you heard me just like guffaw even now, listening to it after I've watched it two other times today. Uh, I just think that is such a brilliant Frank Oz character moment. Yeah. How did it's rehearsals beautiful. for this go, do you think? Like, I'm very confused by Fozzie's process. Yeah, well, considering he was building the dummy up until a minute ago, because he's been walking around backstage saying, oh, I'm on in a few minutes and my act isn't ready. True, or, true. hey, Edgar Bergen, I'm on in a minute. How does ventriloquism work? <laughs> <laughs> he's trying his best. There's also a fun bit where he's, like, passing the dummy back and forth in front of himself. Like when he's saying he won't talk to me, he's like looking at it sideways and like doing this. Little, there's a little bit of choreography with he him. He shakes and it really hard. Yeah. <laughs> Makes you worry about how Fozzie might be as a parent. <laughs> I mean, if you were considering Fozzie as potential co-parenting material, maybe you would worry. I, I mean, are you not? I, I'm good. Thanks. He's he's no Rolf. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That, that dummy doesn't have a whole lot of structural integrity. Like every time he kind of like would hoist, hoist it up a little bit, I would just worry that it would fall apart in his hands. Yeah. And then it works fine. I'm, I'm still very impressed by Fozzie's building abilities. He's got a working mouth mechanism. Good for him. Again, I think this sketch is so good. I would have ended the episode with a sketch. And I know there's still one more act to go, and it's a fine one. And obviously, you want to give the guest star the pride of place of giving them the the closing slot. But I just feel like this Fozzie thing is so good that it almost does a disservice to the show by then having one more bit after it. Yeah, it would have made sense to structure things. I mean, even just for Fozzie's arc over the course of the episode, where he sees Edgar Bergen getting laughs and then is able to say to Kermit, hey, you see how Edgar Bergen gets lots of laughs? Here's my act. Because he says that anyway, just without having seen the act. 
and and there's probably a way to have done this and worked Edgar Bergen into it. So Edgar could have been the one who explains to Fozzie, no, actually, you're the one who needs to do the talking. I mean, it was funny with Kermit saying it. It is very funny with Kermit saying it. And also, I don't know why I'm trying to rewrite a 45-year-old sketch <laughs> that is actually excellent as it is. I mean, why are we here? <laughs> <laughs> that said, we do still have an Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy sketch to go. <laughs> so they're on stage to do their act. Charlie is bad-mouthing everyone, and uh, Miss Piggy is not amused. He was just saying that he wanted to meet you. Uh-huh. Didn't yeah. sound that way to me. Well, me neither, and I said it. <laughs> For your information, you overdressed splinter, my heart belongs to Kermit. You? You're in love with a frog? <laughs> what are you laughing at, mahogany mouth? You know what we used to do with frogs? No, you know what we used to do with wood? No, I don't. Chop it! Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that Miss Piggy has a better wig now, because Frank Oz is having a great time tossing her hair around when she tries to chop him and it doesn't go well she just like throws herself back against charlie mccarthy <laughs> yelling about how much her hand hurts it's great uh, in that moment after she yells there's one face that she makes where she opens her mouth and i swear to god it's like she's mouthing the word fuck <laughs> <laughs> i mean it wouldn't surprise me if that's what frank oz was kind of doing it felt very in character for piggy yeah so that's the ventriloquism act in our ventriloquism episode. They remind me of puppets. Mm. Puppets. I've always hated puppets. <laughs> ah, you're a traitor to your class. What class? I never even graduated. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We'll be back next week with an arrow through our heads to discuss the Steve Martin episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. You got the cutest little